When our second season continues in a couple of months, we're going to be talking a lot about genetic engineering. From growing crops that need less of the macronutrients Mars may be short on, to protecting ourselves from radiation and conceivably even redesigning our own bodies to thrive on an alien world, we're facing a lot of huge problems. And the answers to so many of these problems exist inside of us, in our DNA, in the blueprints, so to speak, of life. We're now closer than ever to throwing off chance and to controlling our own biological destiny. Almost everything we've been talking about are things that my lab is working on in some way. Gene drives to eliminate malaria, ways to re reverse aging, modeling complex brain architectures. Last season, we talked to Dr. George Church, but we only ever shared a small piece of that interview. We were pretty focused on the portrayal of genetic engineering in film and literature, and I wanted to stick to that. The whole interview is just really, really fascinating, and it makes for a great primer on a lot of the themes we'll be looking at this season. So here it is. Dr. Church is a professor at Harvard and MIT, co-author of 480 papers, 130 patent publications, and the book Regenesis, which is amazing, by the way, so definitely check that out. He developed methods for the first genome sequence in 1994 and million-fold cost reductions since. We started our conversation out with a general sort of look at synthetic biology, just what is it and what is the promise of it? You know, why are people excited about this? I think now more than ever before, we're getting into a realm where biological engineering is molecular engineering. It's the nanotechnology that really works where you can have extraordinarily complex devices, entities, organisms that are atomically precise. I mean, biology has always done that, but we, we're now getting much, much better at designing and altering. Hence, we're entering an era where safety engineering is a component of microbiological engineering and where we can eliminate essentially all disease. The major diseases that affect developing nations are things like TB, HIV, malaria, and so on, nematode diseases, guinea, worm. These can become extinct or at least regulated down to the point where they are in the United States, where they're essentially non-existent. Then in developing nations, the major diseases are diseases of aging, and we have lots of examples of aging reversal now in animals or extension of life for two to tenfold natural lifespan. So these would completely alter both our economy and many aspects of our culture and the way that we do long-term planning and so on. So, so maybe let's just start with those two points. You, you have, on the one hand, the eradication of diseases that are really plaguing the third world, and on the other, you said there were this sort of abundance of, of signs right now that you know aging can be reversed. Let's start maybe with the diseases. How do you go about making extinct the diseases such as malaria or HIV? You start with the ones that, that we've already made extinct. So smallpox was a worldwide disaster and it's now extinct. We never had to face the multi-drug resistant, vaccine resistant smallpox because it's extinct. Guinea worm has gone from about 3 million cases worldwide to 100. Polio is almost extinct. These are via vaccine or public health hygiene, keeping water clean sort of programs. But then there's some for which that doesn't work, like HIV, TB, and malaria. HIV, so there's multi-drug resistant HIV. It is very changeable, mutable. Vaccines are, have not yet been successful, but those are drugs and vaccines. But a third way that's looking promising is gene editing, knocking out the HIV receptor on the T cells. If the price of that can be brought down, and another thing that's happening in this era that we're in the last few years is our extraordinary ability to bring down prices. Anything that can be miniaturized and 
mass produced by replication, which is true of computers and biology especially, you can drop the price down pretty close to zero, or at least by six orders of magnitude. So that's one possibility for HIV. For malaria, a new prospect that's coming in is not gene editing per se, but gene drives. Both of them can use CRISPR, which is you know an amazing new technology. The CRISPR gene drives can be used to either globally eradicate a species, make a species resistant to, uh, so you can make Anopheles mosquitoes resistant to the malaria parasite, you can make the white-footed mouse resistant to Lyme disease uh, bacterium and then essentially lead to the extinction or huge reduction of those, those pathogens. So we have, on the one hand, using gene editing techniques to really eradicate diseases. What about the process of anti-aging? Is this going to be sort of targeting things like just age-related diseases or, or afflictions? Or is it going to be sort of unlocking really the keys to what it means to be a human and to actually stopping the aging process completely? Well, I mean, I think we can approach both. The ideal is prevention. Reversal is quite attractive in that you can get rapid biomedical research feedback. So to extend longevity, especially from birth, is a very long feedback loop. While reversal of aging, you can have a whole variety of biomarkers ranging from the molecular ones like methylation of DNA all the way up to the physiological ones like grip strength, reaction time, cardiovascular fitness, and so on. In principle, these can be reversed in weeks rather than the decade-long readout it might take to, to look at longevity effects. And there are numerous examples uh, in animals, so in worms and fruit flies, and in mice, where you can get either longevity effects or aging reversal. And one example is impact on mitochondrial function. Another example is so-called heterochronic parabiosis, where you take blood from uh, young mice and put it in old mice, and you get restoration of the physiological status of at least five major organ systems, including skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, blood vessels, neurons, and so on. I think the problem that persists, it seems, I mean, the culture, it's very open to, to things like cures, cures for diseases and, and whatnot, but it tends to really shut down when it comes to improvements. How do you think about just the human body? Is it perfect? Can Is there room for improvement there? What are the ethics involved in, in all of this? Well, there's two problems. One is it's hard to get clinical trials on preventatives in general, even if they're not really improvements. They're just, if you have a healthy individual and you're preventing something that might happen in the future, the perception is the most likely thing you'll do is make things worse if they're, if they're really very healthy to start out with. So there is an easier path in the approval process. And it's not a bureaucratic problem. It reflects genuine issue with biomedical research. It is hard to come up with preventatives other than trivial ones like, you know, exercise and eating right and that kind of thing. So that's one thing is the whole preventative. Then what you were alluding to above and beyond prevention is augmentation. I actually think we're more open to augmentation than we let on. It's not so much the end point, the thing we're selecting for, it's the way we do it. So for example, if I said, I'm going to take somebody and make them beautiful via surgery and makeup and clothing and hairstyling and so forth, that's fine. The end point of beauty is not repulsive to us. In fact, it's quite attractive. We pay people more if they arrange themselves well. But if we said we're going to do that with recombinant DNA, suddenly it's makeup is better than recombinant DNA. It's the way you got there. 
And the same thing for intelligence. If I prescribe a drug that helps you stay alert and stay on task, you know, like caffeine or monofinil or something like that, that's fine. But if I alter your sperm so that your kids will have that from birth, then that it's the mechanism of getting there that's not okay. And part of it has to do with a perceived reversibility or consent. Maybe if you if you're talking about the next generation. And these are these are valid points. You know, when you're doing long term experiments, it's much harder to do. But we're getting better at it. We're figuring out ways that we can get feedback on long term experiments more quickly. How much of it do you think is, I mean, you mentioned uh, augmentation of beauty and then also attention span. In augmentation, people don't have a problem with exercise, as, as you mentioned, or makeup or, or hair extensions or things like this. But when it comes to even just ignoring genetics, just like plastic surgery, suddenly there is a stigma there. And then you mentioned modafinil on, on the performance enhancing side of, of work, but, but there's significant pushback in nootropics as well. And there are movements all, all across college campuses that equate kids who use Adderall with athletes who, who use steroids. And there's, there's real anger there. How much of this do you think has to do with class, this idea that well, you, you shouldn't be allowed to just pay for a leg up on performance, class and also competition. How much of this has to do with the way that people feel maybe that they are, they are being made to compete with superhumans and it's not right? There's a bunch of concepts here. I mean, I think we have a slightly different attitude towards work and play or athletics. Athletics, in a certain sense, has a certain set of rules and you don't want them to change too quickly. Or in principle, you don't want them to change at all. You want to be, if we could go back in time to the Greek Olympics in the original days, we should be able to compare records. So that's kind of a, a very special case. But in the business world, if you have drug, especially an inexpensive one that anybody can have that helps you perform better, a performance enhancement is okay, unless it's dangerous. So I think part of the pushback on plastic surgery or, or cosmetic surgery is not that it's bad to look good. Sometimes it fails. Sometimes it doesn't accomplish the goals of the surgeon and the patient. And I think that's a, a really valid critique. But also, you know, if you have an objection to it, you need to change society so they don't give higher salaries to people who look better. Many of the things that are considered augmentation, speculatively and hypothetically, you know, if we had ability to see the full electromagnetic spectrum or hear things that are very far away or, you know, et cetera. So, you, know, you can make all kinds of superpowers. We already have them. We've augmented ourselves with devices. And again, we don't object to that. We don't object to the fact that some humans can, mostly scientists and military, can see the whole magnetic spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, where, you know, from gamma rays to ultraviolet, infrared, to radio, and we can see it. We can image with it. That's okay. And then there's no particular reason to incorporate that into our biological nature. I mean, if we have a perfectly good interface via, say, say our eyes, our high-resolution retina that we already have. But as we approach, I mean, now we're, we're sort of talking about modifying people. I mean, that's the, the sort of where the conversation is leading. And I think that is, you know, at the end of the day, that is just the thing that people are either most excited for on the sort of transhumanist side of things and also most, you know, terrified of in the kind of hysterical journalist side of things. We previously talked about superheroes and, you know, what's wrong with being superhuman. Maybe if we have machines that can augment things, like you said, and allow us to see the electromagnetic spectrum and we don't have to edit ourselves in that way, there's 
there's no reason to do it. But certainly there's going to be room for things like, I mean, what about increasing bone density or giving people the, the ability to regenerate more quickly? What is the ethical limit there? And what does a world, if any, and, and what does a world look like filled with superhumans? Well, I mean, we are superhumans compared to our ancestors. I mean, you know, our ancestors couldn't even dream of going to the moon. What we have is a world where not everybody can go to the moon. In fact, really right now, we bring down the prices and eventually things become well distributed like cell phones, right? We're very, very expensive and required a car to carry them around initially. The things that, we're, that we will focus on are, are, are things that are hard to do with some combination of current biology and devices. So these would include extending our usefulness because it's not that great to be able to fly to the moon and see ultraviolet if you're in the phase of your life where multiple organs are failing and you're in pain and, and it's very expensive. So that would have huge economic impact if nobody retired and, and everybody that's currently worrying about Social Security is suddenly worrying about instead how productive they're going to be over the next 20 years because they're back in the job market. It's really about health in a changing environment. So our environment is pretty different from our ancestors' environment. We need to adapt biologically to it. You know, we're surrounded by food rather than starving all the time. That's a change. We're very high population density in certain circumstances. We're not allowed to do fight or flight the way we used to. But the even bigger changes are on the horizon, you know, to, to avoid all sorts of existential threats, either from within the Earth or from outer space like asteroids. We need to get a significant fraction of the population off the planet. And if we cure aging, even cure all kinds of diseases, including aging, we probably need to develop inexpensive methods of getting a huge fraction of the population off the planet. We're not well adapted to extended space flight. I mean, we might need to go beyond Mars. And then that's a lot of radiation and possibly gravity issues, psychosocial, microbiome. Even people who are opposed to transhumanism don't mind that we have some compensating biology that allows us to deal with the new challenges in space. It's a, it's a different conversation that you have, even with skeptics, when you start talking about the real challenges of space colonization. As we, I mean, there, there are all these incredible things that we're going to be able to do as biology, our tools in biology improve, and with bioengineering, things like you mentioned, CRISPR-Cas9, there must necessarily also be some perils here. It'll be easier to create organisms, for example. Some of these organisms might be really bad for people. How do you think about protecting us, people, in a world where anyone can kind of hack a creature together in his basement lab? One of the best strategies historically has been to be isolated. In other words, where in the old days, you would tend to be born and die in the same house, the same village. And so if somebody developed a horrible disease, let's say got it from a pig or a duck, they wouldn't transmit it to the next village. And so one of the things that used to be one of our strengths was that we were isolated in these little villages and we could develop new ideas the new ideas might spread, but maybe the diseases would spread much more slowly. So that's another argument for getting some of us off the planet, ideally to as many colonies as possible and have those colonies interact as little as possible. You know, we actually are at great risk to having a very well-mixed society where ideas and, and more important physical proximity keeps us more well-mixed than ever, than ever before. I think that's extraordinarily important. 
I mean, it, it sounds like the prescription here is space colonies, but we're going to be able to design new organisms within the decade or, or two at least, or at most, no? We can design new organisms today. I mean, there have been very enhanced pathogenicity, so-called gain-of-function viruses have been made, both in the pox virus family and the influenza family. Fortunately, people who have a bad day or a bad life usually resort to uh, conventional weapons. That kind of exotic nature may not appeal to you if you can just pick up an automatic weapon. Why would you go and design a virus which might backfire on you? But this could change. And, you know, one of the things we need to do is increase our surveillance capabilities. And ideally, we would create an environment where if mental health is an issue, we, we focus on improving overall mental health. We focus on improving poverty so that some of the motivations for doing this. If fewer people have a bad day and are envious of other people, if we could reduce that envy level or, or psychosis or whatever combination of factors is, that could buy us some time. With big numbers, even buying time, eventually something can happen. And so, But it's also possible we could be off the planet in a few decades, at least some of us, and that that's an insurance policy, if nothing else. So these could arrive on a kind of similar time frame. The enabling technology is floating all the boats. But still, I wonder if there are any solutions. I mean, you're mentioning kind of one-off crazy type people in our country. What about if it's weaponized and from a different country? I mean, we don't know it. Even China's working on gene editing people right now. What else are they doing? And I mean, maybe with the rapid ability to produce organisms, is there also some more rapid ability to trial and error cures? Is there any hope there at all? You know, CRISPR is probably not a good weapon. It would be like fifth on the list, uh, last on the list, you know, the top one would be conventional weapons and then, you know, conventional pathogens, engineered pathogens. CRISPR would probably be best in a defensive mode, whether it's gene drives or altering your cells so you don't have receptor to viruses or you have CRISPR that attacks viruses, which is something it does in nature. I think CRISPR is on the defensive end of the spectrum. You can worry that, that some country or corporation or group of individuals could focus on intelligence. I think improving natural intelligence is actually easier than artificial intelligence. We're a lot closer, and the costs of biological manipulation are coming down faster than electronics. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. It's not a weapon as such, but it could greatly change economic or strategic balance if you had even a few dozen people that were extraordinarily effective at some particular type of intellectual activity. You know, like if you had some people that were extraordinarily good at protecting economic markets, they could have an impact. They were good at invention. They could invent a lot of things. It's speculative, but we have examples where you can improve the intellectual or the intelligence or behavioral performance of mice in various tasks with a fairly small number of genetic changes. So to say that we don't understand this at all is, a, is an overstatement. We have things that can be done in mice and inevitably these will be tried out in other animals and humans. This is Anatomy of Next. New World.